Dodi, it's December and the nights have closed in here in the Northern Hemisphere. And because of the pandemic, our appetite for the outdoors is still here, even during the working day, right? You do walking meetings, isn't that right? Every day I am out and about. I call it doing a meeting on my feet. And so where do you walk on these peripatetic meetings? Fortunately, uh, there is a lot of forest to choose from in Sweden, and I live close to one or many, so I am out with the trees. So you know what I love about the forest? Do tell. Mushrooms. Oh, the fungus obsession that you have. Here we are. We finally got to the episode on fungi and their role in our world. So that is what matters in this episode of Discovery Matters. I've just picked up on the verge of the path. Oh, a couple of runners going past. Um, a, a waxy little white thing, um, really quite small. I think the gills are decurrent. Does that mean they're attached to the stem and they go down when they attach? Yes. Yeah, so it sounds like you might have found a snowy wax cap. A snowy what? what? And who is that? Yes, a snowy wax cap, and this is Claire Blenko. I work for the Sussex Wildlife Trust, where I manage the Sussex Biodiversity Record Centre. So what I do for a living is work with sort of volunteer naturalists and recording groups in order to gather data about our county's wildlife. My hobby is going out looking at mushrooms and fungi. And we were on an extreme socially distanced mushroom foray. So we were actually about 90 miles apart from each other, but talking on the phone as we walked. It was raining. It was crazy. That's awesome. So once again, a big sorry for the quality of the audio. I was out there walking in the rain and the woods near my house on the phone. And I'm walking through some woods which are sandwiched between... Uh, my village and the industrial estate on the edge of the village and it's a local nature reserve and these these sorts of places are really important bits of our landscape for providing access to green space which I think we've all really valued during the sort of period that we're in this year. Um, I just walked past some glistening ink caps poking out of a pile of rotting logs Claire is also the founder of the Mycological Book Club. Yes, there is a book club for, for everything. Love mushrooms. It's brilliant. And that's actually how I stumbled across her. It was fairly near the beginning of the lockdown. I think probably, like a lot of people, I'd found myself trapped in a pattern of constant doom scrolling. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. Tonight, killer hornets invading the U.S. and Canada. Asian giant hornets, also known as murder hornets, spotted in Washington state. Fueling ever-increasing levels of anxiety, and I thought, I've, I've got to stop reading the news. But it felt like a bit of a big step to just get off the internet entirely. So I sought refuge in the Biodiversity Heritage Library, which is a website that has sort of overseen the digitization of just a huge amount of historic literature relating to biodiversity across the whole world. And you can sort of 
get yourself in there and read books and look at illustrations from previous centuries. And I found it a wonderful escape and also really fascinating because in the 19th century, people had a completely different way of writing about natural history. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is so interesting. I'd, I'd love to talk to other people about this. And of course, Twitter makes that really easy to just set up a Twitter page and tell people that you've got a hashtag. I think at that point, there were about two other people <laughs> who said they'd join in. It was just at a time when all social engagements were off. So I thought, do you know what would be really yeah. nice? It'd be nice to have something to look forward to, something that's a date in the diary and a lot of time to sit down and talk to people about something, like how a book club works. So it was really that simple. So it's the first Tuesday of every month on Twitter. The hashtag is hashtag MycoBookClub. The Twitter account is the same, actually, at MycoBookClub. And you'll be surprised at just how much there is to read out there and how many people there are interested in mushrooms and fungi and discussing books about them. Anyway, back to our extreme socially distanced fungal foray. Um, I just walked past some glistening ink caps poking out of a pile of rotting logs. There's a whole sort of group of different mushrooms that get referred to as ink caps. And they're so-called ink caps because they have this feature of dissolving gradually over time so they sort of turn into a sort of inky dripping consistency which just sort of will drip down from the edge of the cap so one that people might be particularly familiar with is the shaggy ink cap or the lawyer's wig and that one's bullet shaped big white mushroom quite tall gradually as it matures the base of the mushroom will sort of kick out and then it will gradually start to dissolve from the bottom towards the top it's covered in these sort of glistening, tiny glistening mica-like particles which gradually wash off with the rain. But if you catch them when they're, when they're just emerging, they can look quite, look quite sparkling. And this for me is just like the joy of it. You can just go out into the fields and the woods and immerse yourself in the landscape and you're right at the frontier of a huge body of incredible science that we utterly depend on, but we just know so very little about. I can entirely believe that this hugely understudied kingdom of organisms does all sorts of interesting, useful stuff, which benefit people. I think kind of understanding to which that can be applied to human existence is probably still in its fairly early stages. But I think it's a symptom of the fact that they've been so understudied for so long that it is this vast and exciting field that has so much promise. I can see why people get super excited about what fungi can do. Oh, yes, I can vouch for that, having had to hear you rant about the amazing kingdom of the fungi. Yes, I can get a little over-enthusiastic, but look, with good reason. I think one of the things that I'm always keen to get across when I'm talking to new people is the art of observing fungi, especially nowadays. It's a very attractive idea that you can just point your phone at something and get a photo of it and find out what it is, post a picture of it on the internet and tell you, somebody tell you what it is. But many species are quite cryptic or quite nuanced in their character kind of one of the joys of studying fungi for me is you 
you really need to kind of put your whole self in it. So you do need to get down and, and look at it and, and look at the whole thing and learn the sort of terminology to help you understand the details of its kind of visual features. But you also need to sniff it, feel it. You need to interact with it in order to get an understanding of Bungie's features. I think gaining more familiarity, more sort of comfort with touching fungi, observing fungi, and keeping ourselves safe just by washing your hands before you have your sandwich at lunchtime. I think just appreciating their incredible diversity and the sort of fascinating and weird features that they have. So I get they are understudied, but why suddenly so important? Well, it turns out we should all be in total gobsmacked awe of fungi. Because were it not for fungi, there would be no plants, no animals, no terrestrial life on Earth at all. About 500 million years ago, before, before plants had moved on to land, or the ancestors of plants had moved on to land, and these algal uh, ancestors of plants were living in fresh waters in lakes and rivers, when you know, washing up onto these muddy shores, but unable to make a life in the open air where it was scorched and desolate and hot and um, seared with radiation. It was in these early moments that we think these algae struck up a relationship with some fungi who were able to scavenge in this solid ground, you know, in this medium of the, of the land, in this terrestrial place. The alga was able to eat light to produce this energy, these energy-containing carbon compounds, which it could then exchange with these fungi for mineral nutrients that they'd managed to scavenge from the, from the ground, from the environment that they were living in. Who is this guy? I'm Merlin Sheldrake. I'm an author and I'm a biologist. Merlin? Like the magician? Yes, and the magic he's entangled with is the magic of mushrooms. Sounds like a... No, no, we're not doing that joke. No fun, no fun. (laughs) So, Merlin's book is all about fungi and humanity's extraordinary interrelationships with them. Modern plants arise from this relationship, and still to this day, 90% of plants depend on these fungi for not just nutrition, but also for water, but also for for their health. What we think of as plants are really algae that have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. These these fungal relationships are are totally fundamental to to plants. And of course, plants are totally fundamental to to life on this planet and make up 80% of the biomass on the planet and at the base of the food chains that sustain all recognizable life on Earth, including our own. Okay, okay, let me get this straight. 500 million years ago, fungi made a pact with algae to trade nutrients for carbon, and that gave rise to plants. No fungi, no plants on land, no life on land, no humans. Yep, so fungi, this kingdom of life is kind of a big deal. They're like, it's kind of everything. Exactly, it's everything. They've only been a kingdom since like 1969 when they were pulled out of plants, right? So I wanted to ask Merlin why 
this like amazing kingdom of organisms. They're not plants. Um, they they're more in common with animals. Why has it been so hard for people to study this kingdom compared with yeah, well plants, animals, and the other kingdoms? As Claire told us earlier, physics you have dark matter and dark energy. These this this energy and matter that we know nothing about, and yet makes up a huge proportion of the universe. And in the microbial world, fungal and bacteria, and archaeal world, I think of it as dark life. You know, you have people show graphs, and there's large sections of the graph labeled unknown. These are these life forms that we know exist. We know are there in the world. We know are doing things. We know are ancient. Have these long histories. We just can't grow them in our controlled environments. So we have no mm. way to tease apart using our conventional experimental methods what exactly is doing what and who's doing what where so it's just like a mess right we can't see what's right under our feet this is the other thing i love it's just right there even the great heroes of biological science failed when it came to fungi people haven't known fungi have had this very patchy taxonomic history and even Linnaeus writes about them like the, the fungi are uh, a chaos, the chaos fungorum, a scandal of art. No one knows what's a variety and what's a species. People were still debating whether they were houses that insects built, you know, up until the 18th century. And this comes to us from the classical writers who had a very unsystematic way of thinking about these organisms, partly because there was so little material to study, unlike plants, where you have all these shoots and leaves and, and roots. And Theophrastus describes truffles, but he only says what they aren't. He said they have no, no shoots, no leaves, no roots, no veins. And he can only say what they don't have. Well, of course he's referencing the Swede, the great Swedish biologist Carl von Linné. I know there's just altogether too much Sweden already is, in this episode. We'll go even I'm further, right? I'm on. loving it. Yeah. But Connor, this is changing, right? So now we are seeing this surge, delayed though it is, um, in the study of fungi and their practical uses. So why why is it now? How come we have finally caught up to this? Well, in part, Merlin says it's because of the development of better scientific tools and ways of studying them. Just as these techniques have opened up new possibilities and other aspects of the life sciences, so they have in mycology, because you just simply have more resolution. For example, you can use certain dyes or stains or fluorescent molecules to visualize the flow of materials through fungal networks and using labeling techniques that allow you to track the flow of labeled isotopes of various molecules, not just through a network, but track them into different DNA of different organisms so you can work out where in the community these compounds are passing. So this resolution has just increased a, a huge amount. For example, in the study of mycorrhizal fungi, which form symbiotic relationships with plants, we've learned a lot about their trading pattern habits, the way that plants and fungi trade nutrients with each other. And this has been possible by having these very finely controlled microcosm systems, which use labeled isotopes of phosphorus and carbon and measure the fluxes between these organisms. All this wouldn't have been possible even you know, 30 years ago. Awesome. Okay, so life sciences tools and technologies finally embracing the fungi. That's exactly right. And it's about time. And we've been benefiting from fungi for thousands of years in so many ways, and now especially in health science. So there's medicines, of course, penicillin being the most famous example produced by a, a mold, a fungus. Other drugs, less well-known, uh, which are still huge, like cyclosporin, which makes organ transplants possible, and immunosuppressant. And myriacin, which is a MS drug, multiple sclerosis drug. So drugs are a biggie, all sorts of things. Uh, engineered strains of yeast produce 
most of the, or many of the vaccines that we have in circulation. And in food and drink, of course. Uh, alcohol, of course. Pfizer with food, you know, we've, we've recruited fungi to break things down for us for a long time. And miso, for example, or making soy sauce, similar process. Alcohol making is even a kind of domesticated decomposition process. You know, we're turning sugar into, into alcohol with the, the least of turning sugar into alcohol. But there are lots of other things. Citric acid, for example, is which is used in all fizzy drinks, is produced by an aspergillus fungus. So that's a huge fungal job that's being done and hiding in plain sight. Oh, there's lots of enzymes in industry from those used to um, make stonewashed jeans um, to those in cheese making, clarified juices. So there's loads of things that they do and that they've done for a long time um, and that we don't think much about. Well, Connor, you are certainly making a good case for the debt of gratitude we owe to fungi. Everything good that comes on a weekend, like cheese, wine, bread and beer. Totally. These, this is thanks to these little guys who are working hard for us all the time. And, and on the weekday, when we're looking at medicines right. and the future of medicines, I mean, there's fungi all around us there as well. So let's look ahead then. Where is this new understanding of fungi going to take us? So in so many different directions. So it was very hard as I sort of pulled this episode together to, to stay focused on just one area. So there's there's real practical uses of fungi where we can put them to work for us. And then there's kind of the more fundamental research going on into understanding not just what these organisms are, but, but how they are. What is their actual mode of being? And, and I want to talk about that first and we can maybe in another episode come back to kind of like the practical uses because the mode of being of fungi challenges the very concept of what it means to be an individual do you remember when we talked about the microbiome and we learned that we are full of all sorts of other bacteria and fungi and organisms and we're not maybe just a human just because it's our body doesn't mean it belongs entirely to us exactly and then merlin comes up with this concept that actually it challenges the idea of where intelligence comes from. Here he is again. This question of how these decentralized organisms can, can stay in touch with themselves. One of the things I discuss in the book is this, the very beginnings of a completely new line of inquiry within the fungal world, which is that of this electrical communication. The work of a biologist called Stefan Olsen, who in Sweden in the 90s. So somehow we're always, we're coming, always back. coming back to Sweden for the mind-blowing facts, Whoa. right? But look, this is really cool and it explains a lot. Um, so Olsen worked next door to a team of neurobiologists who were using microelectrodes to study moths' brains. And he said, can I borrow your microelectrodes that you've got stuck in moth brains? They were studying moth brains and studying the passage of the way that these waves of electrical activity passed along moth neurons. Now, I want you to listen to something. Hang okay. On a second. Can you click that link yes. and just listen to the audio? Yes. Can you hear that? I can. Isn't it funky? Sonic representation of the activity of the fungus as it eats the book. So, okay, but it's a representation. So these are instruments recreating the sounds. No, they're not instruments recreating the sounds. It is the bioelectric field um, being represented in an oscillator. Um, and that's just the noise the oscillator makes as it records the bioelectric field of the fungus. That is completely freaky. 
So totally, totally bonkers. And um, we'll come back to uh, another little um, Maiko song a little bit later on. But it is so meta, right? That is Merlin's book being eaten by a pleurotus, an oyster mushroom fungus. Um, it's amazing. So it's talking to itself. Is it? It's like sitting at dinner with somebody who eats their food and like mm, mm, makes all the makes all the pleasure noises of something yeah. that tastes good. Yeah, it's brilliant. And actually, if you go onto Twitter and you 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 find Merlin's Twitter account, you can watch him eat the fungus that ate his book. It's even better than that. I mean, it's like seven levels of meta. But look, you know, talking to itself, it depends on what you mean by talking and it depends on what you mean by itself. And it gets even crazier because it seems that fungi really do sense their surroundings and react to them. You found that, that the fungus didn't just produce action potentials or action potential like spikes, um, but it, used, it seemed to respond with these spikes to, to its environment. So if you put a block of wood on this, a wood-rotting fungus, so this is food, and um, this is a major event. The fungus, it increases the rate of firing of these electrical impulses, and you take away the wood and the rate of firing decreases. So the fungus is responding to its environment and in some sense communicating what it's finding and where it is to all the other parts of itself, and really quite rapidly, not slowly in the way that we might associate that plants would do that, much more the way an animal would do that. Yeah, just in the same way that you touch the floor with your toe and electrical impulses pass up to your nervous system and communicate to the rest of your body that your toe is in this vicinity experiencing this kind of sensation. You know, this is, it's a very effective way for organisms to stay in touch with themselves, which is why we depend on it so greatly. And it's just fascinating that within the lives of these very different organisms, this kind of signaling may take place. If these qualities of brains and neurons, these have their roots in much more ancient cellular traits that have existed for a very long time. Is is Merlin actually saying that fungi think? And if so, when are they going to take us over? Okay. So, <laughs> you know, I'm never afraid to ask the really big questions on this podcast. So that's exactly what I said. I said, okay, Merlin, so are they conscious? Could we talk yeah. to them? What would they say? I mean, who wouldn't want to have a fungi to talk to? See how careful I was? <laughs> Mer Merlin's a bit more That's measured, pretty though. stinky. Yeah. I don't think that consciousness is a trait uh, restricted to humans. To what degree it's not restricted to humans, I'm not sure. But if it was discovered at some point in the future that fungi were, had some kind of consciousness, I'd be very excited by that. And I would want to keep my mind open to the possibility that it might happen because because I think it's a more interesting world. Isn't that just fabulous? It is fabulous. You know, for thousands of years, people have known about mushrooms, but only very recently are we beginning to understand some of the real importance of, you know, where they come from, the fungi that give rise to mushrooms. I think it's perfect that this is going, going to be a topic that we revisit. We will definitely come back here because there's sustainability, there's medicines at play, um, there's eco-remediation, there's a lot, lot going on, but we really, we really must finish with the audio from this tweet. So that is Merlin accompanying his fungus eating his own book on the piano. What a brilliantly talented researcher. Couldn't we all be like that? I wish. 
And on that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Discovery Matters. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. That would be grand. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Our executive producer is Andrea Killen. Discovery Matters is produced in collaboration with Soundtelling. Production and music by Thomas Henley. <laughs>